Please take your Bibles as we continue through Peter to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three. And having already prayed, I'd like to tell you a little story. There was an old couple who attended a marriage seminar at their church. When the leader of the seminar asked what was the key to a long, happy, and successful marriage, he noticed the older couple sitting in the back of the room. The leader asked the husband, How long have you guys been married? The man said, 20 years. The leader then asked, Well, where did you first meet? The man paused and said, At a cousin's wedding. The leader then asked, Where was your first date? Do you remember that? The man replied, It was at the local Dairy Queen. The leader continued by asking, where did you guys get married then? And the man said, in a Baptist church in our hometown. The leader then asked a final question. What would you say is the key to a long and lasting and successful marriage? The man paused and said, really knowing each other. The leader then thanked him for his contribution and answers and then asked the wife if she had anything to add that her husband didn't say. And the woman stood up, cleared her throat, looked at the ceiling with disgust, and said, We have been married 14 years, and we met at a dance, and our first date was at the diner, and we were married at St. John's Church in Maryville. All the answers my husband gave you to your questions were from his first wife, and then sat down and said nothing more. After a few moments of the awkward silence in the room, it was interrupted by the man who asked, Can I change my answer? And the leader said, Sure. What is the key then to successful marriage? And the man replied, Remembering who you're married to. I use that to break the ice because as we continue, we progress through 1 Peter in the theme of holy living. Peter continues in chapter 3 with the theme of submission to authority. That's the consistent theme in which he's speaking of. So far, Peter has addressed the major institutions of authority that, we are, that are placed over us and that we need to be submissive to uh, as citizens of government. Peter admonishes us to live with respect, honor, and obedience to those placed in authority over us within the state. As it relates to servants and earthly masters, Peter states that we are to live with a deep respect for them and honoring them. And now Peter is addressing the institution of marriage as it relates to the authority and the responsibilities therein, as it relates to the husbands and to the wives. In each area, Peter is showing us how to live this holy life in respect to the authorities placed over us in order to do three things, to bring glory to God, holiness in our lives, and exemplifying Christ for evangelism. Now, whenever we explore Scripture, we must interpret it by using sound hermeneutics. 
Now, hermeneutics is one of those big theological words that means to properly interpret Scripture. Now, within hermeneutics, there are several rules that need to be applied in order to understand Scripture and to ensure it's not being applied in a manner that detracts from its true meaning. One of the primary rules in interpreting Scripture is context. There's an old saying, a text taken out of context will lead to pretext. What does pretext mean? It means an assumption. It's an assumption of what you think it means given the English translation that you received. And sometimes that's not always accurate. And so within context, we need to take in several factors to understand what we're talking about. First of all, we've got to take into consideration the time in which it was written. We've got to take into consideration the audience in which it was written to. We've got to look at the culture of the time. We've got to look at the history. We've got to look at the writer. What consistent message is he relaying? What is his major and sub-themes to his text? And these are just to name a few. And so as we examine these texts this morning, we must keep in mind the context from which they are given. So let's begin by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter begins this chapter with the word likewise. Now, your translations may say in the same way, which um, this statement continues the context of what Peter's been talking about, and that is submission to the authorities placed over us. He has progressively talked about the major institutions of authority and, and, our, and our earthly employers, and now down to the institution of marriage. So then what is the context then of this verse? Well, there are actually two contexts. The first context is doctrinal. Now, what does doctrine mean? It's a set of beliefs held by the church that have been taught through its history. And it's comparable to other scriptures. It's consistent theme within scripture. And in that consistent theme of Scripture, Peter's actually echoing, or Paul is echoing Peter, because they are on the same page as it relates to what we're talking about this morning, because Paul writes in his epistle to the Ephesians, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husbands is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You see, God holds the husband accountable just like he holds government accountable and earthly masters accountable for their responsibility and provision of leadership. Likewise, God holds the wife accountable for her role within the home as well. Each have God-given responsibilities to be carried out in order to maintain and enhance the Christian home, which is an extension of the church. The second context, so the first one's doctrinal. It's a consistent theme taught throughout Scripture and history. 
The second context of this verse is historical. During the early church, many women came to Christ, but their husbands didn't. They continued to live a pagan way. As a result, many women during this time wondered if they should have leave their unbelieving husbands. No different than what we discussed a couple of weeks ago as it relates to servants wanting their freedom under the bondage of slavery. Because they were now free in Christ. Even when they were under the authority of Christian masters. And so Peter is telling the women not to leave but to live exemplified lives in Christ. In other words, your faith in Christ, your freedom in Christ, even though you are partnered with an unbelieving spouse, does not give you license to leave. And this is why being unevenly yoked is a real issue. Believers should never enter into a marriage with unbelievers. Now, we really need to define what that word believer means because that's kind of ambiguous sometimes. Are they living a Christian life? Are they, are they showing the fruit of Christian maturity? Your faith in Christ is not a religion. That's just a part of who you are, right? So when you, you're in a relationship with a guy or your relationship with a gal, and you go, well, I'm, I'm, I'm Methodist. Well, I'm Lutheran. But that's okay. That's our religions, right? We'll, we'll agree on where we raise our kids after we have them. Your Christian faith is not a religion in that aspect as to just a part of who you are. Your Christian faith is who you are in Christ in entirety. And every relationship that has a believer, has believers, needs to be centered on Christ. Because then the marriage will be successful from there. Because the priorities are right. Having examined the context by which Peter writes these verses, we need now to take a careful, detailed look at the most important word within this scripture, and that is the word subject. Or your word may say, submission. Now when pastor or teachers in churches speak about the word submission as it relates to women, you can feel the hesitation because the world sees submission to any man as demeaning and objectionable no matter the circumstances because if you remember last week when I said, at the heart of the natural man is a rebellion towards authority. And so any hint of submission to authority is objectionable. And as a result, this worldly mindset as to what is submission in relationship to authority has given submission to authority in the Bible a bad rap. They don't truly understand it. All they see is the offense. They don't understand why. The Word of God says that in both Peter and Paul and other places. So it's important for us to understand what the Bible really says about submission. And let that be our guide and not the world's reaction. The word subject or the word submission comes from the Greek word, which means that a Christian wife is to place herself 
willingly, under the authority and control of her husband, to subject herself to her husband's authority, which has been given by God, and control and leadership as ordained by God. Sorry, I didn't put that up there. Now, this submission, as I stated, willfully, is not one of force, but of a desire to do the will of God and willfully place oneself under one's authority. It's the same word for members who come into a church and submit themselves to the authority within the church. It's a willful submission. I like how John Piper defines submission. Submission is a divine call of a wife to honor and to affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Remember, marriage is where two people come as one. They become one. They become a unit. And so submission is more than just a sterile, obligated subjection of the will, as if one is subordinate to the other without any affection. In fact, it's an affectionate submission by way of love that a woman is to subject herself to her husband. Just as we are to subject ourselves to Christ and follow His commandments because, why? We love Him. Wives are to affectionately subject themselves to their husbands for the main desire being love rather than simple obedience to authority. As believers in Christ, submission should always be out of love. If love is not present, well, guess what? Neither is the heart, which is the true seat of how we feel, our emotions, how we interact. But it's also supposed to be a cheerful submission. All that God has called us to do, it doesn't matter. We're all called to do it cheerfully. Without grumbling, without complaining. Whether it is given of our offerings to the plate or submission to authorities, whether they be government or employers, it is to be done with a pure heart and a pure conscience when we submit to authority. And so we see that a wife's submission to her husband is a divine calling in which the wife affectionately and cheerfully submits herself to her husband as if unto the Lord and supports her husband in his leadership responsibilities within the family. And this all brings glory to God. Now, you really can't talk about submission without covering what submission is not. First, submission does not mean you always agree with your husband. When Darla and I make major decisions in our family, it is a joint decision. Rarely have we ever had to sit down and say, I understand what you're saying, but this is the route I want to go. So that's the way it's going to go. 
Why? Because we're a team. She respects my authority as God-given, and I respect her support in that authority, and I support her knowledge and her understanding and her gifts that are different than mine. I told her the other day when we were talking about a little bit about this, I didn't want to give up too much of my sermon. I said, I, you know, we're talking in relationship to my brother who's never been married. And I said, I can't imagine going through life, never been married, never having that person next to you, supporting you in what you do. I said, you are the thing that balances me. When I get a little passionate and I get a little wound up, Darla is always that, that, that consistent voice of reasoning that brings me back down to earth. So it's not always agreeing with your husband, right? It should be a partnership. Submission does not mean servanthood. Wife is just not somebody who fetches my dinner and cleans my socks and folds my clothes. Submission does not mean being submissive in sinful acts. Well, my husband enjoys going and going to the bars and gambling, so and he says I have to go with him, so I have no. You are individually accountable to the Lord. You have to give an account for your actions. Never, ever think that you have to follow your husband into sinful acts, even in the home. Submission does not mean to derive all your spiritual strength from your husband. Your husband is a spiritual leader of your family. Yes, that's true, because God... Put that responsibility on him, but you are individually responsible for your growth in Christ. And it's augmented by his leadership, hopefully. Submission does not mean weakness. See, the world looks at submission as that, well, you're just weak. You're not strong, independent woman. I watched a little video on four women who consider themselves to be very strong and passionate women who are women of God who live gentle and quiet lives. And one of the ladies pointed out two women in the Bible that are very strong, but were supportive. The first one was Abigail. Remember Abigail? And we talked about that in Samuel. Abigail, her husband Nabal, who was a fool, pretty much discounted those that were sent to him by David, and she said, oh, no. So she gathered up all the gifts and offerings and took it to David in hopes that he would not take revenge on the disrespect he was given when they visited Nabal. She did that to support her husband, who was a fool. What about Moses' mother? She gave up her son to be raised by others because she understood the will of God as Abigail did. So being submissive to your husband is not a sign of weakness. In more cases, it's a sign of strength because in a lot of homes, you see the strength of a woman in the home. And that strength supports your husband to fulfill his leadership responsibilities. Submission does not mean subject yourself to abuse either. When I was going through chaplain training, we had to tour the women's shelter here in Minot. And one of the requests from the director to the pastors that were going through their training was to have a meeting of the director with the pastors. And the reason for this meeting was to communicate to them, please do not tell the women that come here to this center to go back to their husbands who abuse them 
because it's their obligation under faith. And I was, when she told me that, I was like, are you serious? A woman who's abused by their husband is told by a pastor to go back to that abusive relationship because of what we're reading here today? A few weeks ago, I spoke about when we do not submit to civil authorities, when they direct us to violate our faith directly in Christ. It's the same with the women in an abusive relationship. When the relationship becomes unsafe for the wife or the children, the authority of the husband that has been divinely established has now been compromised by the sin of the husband that directly affects the safety and security of the family is no longer authority to be submissive to. But in situations where the man is simply not a believer, Peter says to subject yourselves to them so that they can be won by exemplifying Christ. And how do you do that? By respectful and pure conduct. Here Peter identifies the evangelistic manner of the wife's submission to unbelieving husbands in that chaste and godly conduct reflects Christ. That's just not for wives, that's for everybody. Whereas an unbelieving husband may not receive the words that she may share with him, he'll see the transformation of her godly conduct in her spouse, which is powerful. Nancy Kennedy is a beat writer for a newspaper, and her beat area, if you want to call it that, is religion. And she had something very powerful to say when asked how husbands come to the Lord under a believing believing wife. She said this, I am a newspaper reporter. My beat is religion. And I have written the Christian testimonies of well over 400 people. When I do a story of a man who has come to faith in Christ after his wife, I always ask, what was it about your wife? What did she do? What did she say to help you come to faith? Every single man that I have talked to says the same thing. It was not what she said. Frankly, I tuned her out. But it's how she loved me. She just loved me. Even when I was cruel, she just loved me. I find that very interesting. I realize it's hard to live with the spouse that does not believe. We would love nothing more than them sitting with us here in this church. And some of you live with spouses who never gave their life to the Lord or walked away from the Lord, which really put a stress on your marriage. It's not easy. We can even say it's not fair. And it's hard. But remember what God called us to do. Suffer for doing good because not only is the priority glorifying God and living holy lives, but it is also to be a light. And that's not always easy. And sisters, if you're living a submissive life under your husband and you're loving them and you're doing a great work for the Lord, that is precious to the Lord. 
That's not me saying it. That's the Lord saying it. And he will reward you. He will reward you. Peter goes on to say, Now, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter is speaking to believing women in the church who came from the world and are now citizens of heaven. As such, he is now addressing how they should adorn themselves in order to bring honor to the Lord and proper submission to their husbands. The first thing Peter identifies was braiding of hair. Now, braiding of hair in those times was a style of a lewd woman. That's how they would wear their hair. In fact, Barclay says that women were importing wigs from modern-day Germany so that they can weave it into their hair to make them look more sensual. They would also wear a lot of jewelry to show their status and their wealth and their position in society. The clothing would be excessive and at times would draw the attention of other men to their bodies. You know, we live in a vain world where appearance means more than character. It's all about the optics because that is what people see and that is what people tweet. You know, one of the most famous women in the world is a woman who cannot sing, cannot act, cannot dance, has no special talents, hasn't written a book that I'm aware of, but is an internet and television reality star who has 74 million Twitter followers. And what is her claim to fame? A sex tape that started it all. And her company sells a line of clothing and beauty products that's worth billions of dollars. That's what the world desires to be. That's what the world wants to follow. The world is infatuated with the vainness of beauty and the not one of character and of substance. This is not how godly women should be. This is not whom they should follow as an example. You know, in Exodus 38, 8, there's one verse that talks about something that you probably just read over really quick, paid no real attention to it, but it's profound. In, 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 in Exodus 38, 8, the women gave up their brass mirrors so that it could be melted down for a basin for the priest to wash their hands and their feet before they entered into the tabernacle. What's so significant about that, Tim? Bronze mirrors at that time were extremely expensive. They were cherished items. And women used them and polished them in order so that they can uh, you know, look at themselves and make themselves presentable and beautiful by utilizing these mirrors. And one theologian said this, they traded their mirrors in from their outward appearance for their inward person of Christ. Godly women need to focus on who they are on the inside and less on who they are on the outside. 
Because it's about character in Christ, not external beauty. In fact, listen to what we read going back to Samuel again. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not a man as sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's for everybody. It's who you are in the heart, not who you are on the outside. Christians should never be that shallow. Real beauty is found in a person, not in any outward adornment. It's not what you put on in a physical sense. It's what you put on in a spiritual sense. And we are to put on Christ. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God and the true righteousness and holiness. That's how we are to adorn ourselves. That's how wives are to adorn themselves. Now, when Peter says an imperishable beauty, he is speaking of the internal beauty that we're describing here. You know, time is not always friendly to our appearance, right? But the inward beauty of a godly woman never fades. It never fades. It never wanes. It's never affected by time, but only enhanced because it grows in the graces of the Lord. And this is what is precious in God's sight. Again, the primary purpose of our lives in Christ is to bring glory to God. And as a result, we should seek those things that are precious to Him because we love Him. I've said this many times. When we focus on pleasing and glorifying God, first and foremost, it sets in order our priorities in living this life in Christ. If that's your first step, every step that follows after that is going to be in relationship to the first step. Peter now goes on to say, or identifies, that spirit, the gentle and quiet spirit. Within King James, it's translated as a meek and gentle. Notwithstanding the obvious, what do these terms mean in context of this verse? It means having a spirit that is gentle, tender, humble, mild, considerate. It is a spirit that is disciplined under control at all times. It doesn't flare up with anger. It's not disrespectful in speech or conduct. It's not defensive. It doesn't rant, it doesn't rave. It is one that exudes the gifts of the Spirit. And again, this does not mean weak. In fact, it takes tremendous strength to live that way, to be that person. The opposite is what the world prescribes, where women are brash, loud, unhinged, defiant, rude, arrogant, prideful. And this was just in one episode of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I don't watch The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But I did do a little research. Do you know how many of those shows there are? 
Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Atlanta. I think every town's got one. Real Housewives of Burlington. I think it's in there. This is how women and young ladies are being taught what is proper conduct. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, there's a scripture that says it's better to live in the corner of a house stop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome woman. Proverbs 25, 24. Now, when I first read that verse, the very first time I read that verse, I kind of chuckled. And I went and showed it to my wife. I said, look at this verse here. She goes, what do you mean? I'm just sharing. I'm just sharing. But it kind of made me laugh. You know, I went back up there and repaired some shingles. That's what I told her. But isn't it interesting that that proverb is there in relationship to conduct? And so a gentle and precious spirit is is a precious thing in the sight of the Lord. That is what is pleasing to God. In fact, nowhere in God's word, God ever promotes conduct within a man or a woman that is not meek and quiet. Battery's dead. Colossians 12 says this, Put on then, as God has chosen ones, holy and beloved and compassionate hearts, kindness and humility, meekness and patience. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's how we are to act as men and women, is we are to put on Christ, be compassionate, be kind, be humble, be meek, be patient, and always love, which binds all of this together. Now, Peter Peter closes out in the last part of the scripture, it said, and I'll read this for you. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Peter's now closing out of the responsibilities of the wife in the institution of marriage as it relates to submission by giving an example of what he's talking about. And that example is Sarah, Abraham's wife. Sarah's a good example of a woman under submission who honored and loved her husband through some of the most difficult circumstances. First, they had to leave behind their life, their family, their friends, and everything they own when God called Abraham out of Ur into the promised land. Think of that. You want to do what, Abraham? Well, I was speaking to God, and he would like for us to go a little nomadic for a while. You want me to give up my house? And when you do a study of Ur, some of those houses had 12 rooms, very nice furnished, indoor plumbing, running water, very advanced. You you want to go live in a tent for a while? You want me to leave my relatives? What did she do? She supported her husband and said, if this is what God is telling you to do, then I will support you. 
Leaving everything behind, she submitted to her husband and followed him. Being barren and unable to have children, she continued to trust and believe what Abraham was told by the Lord. Sarah stood by her husband when he played the ruse of being her brother so that he would preserve his own life. When they traveled to Egypt, and she found favor with Pharaoh. Fine, Abraham. I play your sister. She went with it, knowing it was wrong. Sarah was so supportive of her husband and wanting to fulfill the Lord's promise, she even convinced him to go into her servant Hagar because they didn't think the promises was going to be fulfilled in their time through them. Although it was an error, she was doing this in support of her husband. And throughout her 127 years of life, Sarah supported her husband because she knew God was directing his life. And men, we'll talk about that next week in part two of Submission in the Home. And so this morning, within God's Word, we all have roles. We all have responsibilities. We're all entrusted with and the key in achieving and glorifying God in them is submission to authority. Whether it be to the government, whether it be to our employers, whether it be within marriage, we are all called to specific roles in bringing glory to God, living holy lives, and exemplifying Christ. This morning we specifically looked at the role of wives in relationship to their husbands. And in it we've seen how God admonishes wives to live willfully submissive lives with all affection, with all cheerfulness to their husbands. They are to have chaste and pure conduct, for that is the recipe in winning an unsaved husband. They are to have an inward adornment that is precious in the Lord's sight. And they are to exemplify a life of Christ by the example of a submissive life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Sometimes, Lord, when we study your word, Father, it, we have to understand its context. And a lot of times, Lord, it's going to go against the grain of the world. And so, Father, I pray that the women of this church and the men of this church receive this, your word, as stated in your holy scriptures, as direction for our lives, as to the responsibilities you have given us. And so, Father, let us all be submissive to you in everything that we do to bring glory to you, to live lives that are holy, and to exemplify the life of Christ, which you called us to do. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.